You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with John Dresner, and John is an associate professor of family medicine at the University of Washington. He's well known to many in the sports medicine community for his work on sports cardiology, and he actually is very active with the Seattle Seahawks as well. It's the first vice president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, and it's a great pleasure to have you on the call, John. Welcome, John. Thanks, Karen, for having me. We're going to touch on prevention of sudden cardiac death. We're going to talk about screening, and we're going to talk about AEDs. They're things that you love to talk about. So let's begin by prevention of sudden cardiac death. Some people say, look, you know, there's going to be the odd death, and it's going to be hard to do much about this rare occurrence. What do you say? Well, a couple of things on that. You know, one is I'm not so sure that sudden cardiac death is is rare. Um, I think for a long time we have felt it's infrequent and people have used the term rare to describe the event, but the the usual incidence that's cited traditionally is about 1 in 200,000 athletes die per year, and and I think we've shown recently that that's a gross underestimate of the true magnitude of the problem. Um, Recently, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Kim Harmon and myself, and some research from the researchers from the University of Washington, we look back at um, five years in the NCAA, the college athletes in the U.S., for all causes of sudden death and also sudden cardiac death. And the average incidence in that population was one in 45,000. And one of the distinguishing features of this study versus some of our past, some of the, the previous literature, is that we had an internal reporting system from the NCAA whereas most of the other studies rely on media reports. And if we relied only on the media reports in our study, we would have missed almost half the cases. And so I think the problem is actually more common than we've thought, um, and uh, it gives us some compelling reason to think about the the prevention strategies. To reflect on your other uh, comment, these athletes may die anyway. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think that sudden cardiac death in in some circumstances, perhaps in most circumstances, is a preventable death. Um, and we may be able to prevent it in one of two ways. We, we might be able to identify those at risk, um, treat them effectively, or uh, modify their activity levels to decrease their risk of sudden cardiac death. Or we may be able to prepare for a sudden cardiac arrest during sports and treat them effectively if they have a tragic event. So they do survive. Let's talk about the screening, you know, identifying this group at risk. You've done a lot of work on that and tell us what do you think sports clinicians should be doing? Sure. You know, I think the first question is um, should we be screening at all? And I think for the sports physician that, that question has been answered for over a couple decades. I think there's universal agreement within the sports medicine fields, the sports governing bodies, uh, the sports cardiology community, that athletes should go through a cardiovascular screen before they participate in sports. So the the typical sports physical or pre-participation evaluation. And and I think everyone agrees that we should be doing that. What we don't agree on is is the method in which we do that screen. And, And it's been sort of a polarized debate often uh, the U.S. versus the the Italian group or U.S. versus the European Society of Cardiology. Uh, But I think even within the U.S., 
there are many people that advocate the European strategy, and, and the biggest difference is whether or not we include an ECG to a history and physical-based uh, examination. Um, the, the way I look at it is, is I think that physicians can choose to do a limited screen, which is based on history and physical, or perhaps a more advanced screen using history, physical, and ECG. Um, the problem with history and physical-based screens is that the majority of athletes who actually have a potentially lethal heart condition have no symptoms. So if we're relying on even a comprehensive questionnaire to identify those at risk, we're going to miss most of them, um, the vast majority of them. And in one study by, by Marin in 1996, they looked back at 115 sudden cardiac deaths on the athletic field and only one of those athletes was actually identified through a history and physical-based um, pre-participation evaluation. So the sensitivity to identify those at risk by history and physical is just terribly limited. Um, physical exam also, in most of the studies, doesn't provide um, much added value. Occasionally we'll pick up on murmurs, but even if you look at the most common cause of sudden cardiac death in athletes, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, 75% of patients with HCM don't have a murmur. So we can't rely solely on physical exam to pick up HCM. And most of our athletes who end up having a problem don't have symptoms. And so if the objective of the cardiovascular screen for athletes is to identify those at risk, a history and physical-based model is just limited. It gives us... Um, limited sensitivity to meet our primary objective. And so it raises the question, is there something else that we can do, something that will add to that sensitivity that we can do accurately enough that it's acceptable? And I believe strongly that that additional item we can do is adding a resting 12-lead ECG. Um, there's been a lot of debate about that specific topic, and I think the the debate ranges on several parameters. The first is, what's the false positive rate of doing an ECG? Um, we know that athletes who train on a regular basis have some remodeling of their heart called athletic heart, and that remodeling causes some ECG changes to, let's say, the layperson who doesn't exercise. And there is some overlap of those ECG findings um, that may also be seen in diseases that cause sudden death. And so if you're an untrained or unskilled interpreter of the ECG, you may um, call a very high number of ECGs in trained athletes, you know, quote, abnormal, when they're really actually normal or physiologic findings from their exercise. And so the original studies on ECG screening showed a 15 or 20% false positive rate, which is really quite high and in many ways unacceptable. But I think the, the cardiology and the sports medicine community has learned quite a bit about how to interpret these ECGs, how to distinguish uh, potentially pathologic heart disease from those physiologic changes in athletes, and it's simply a matter of understanding uh, that list of abnormalities that we should be looking for on ECG. If we apply the modern criteria, which I, I think are... Um, best summarized in a 2010 uh, position statement from the European Society of Cardiology on ECG interpretation in athletes. If we apply the, the, this 
contemporary criteria, the false positive rate reduces well below 5%, and in some studies as low as 2%. So now we're dealing with a completely different screening tool. When you compare sort of the old false positive rate that was quite high to the current modern false positive rate, which is probably in the range of 2 to 5%, which if you look at any of the screening tests we do in medicine, like mammography, for instance, is well within the acceptable range and in many circumstances actually quite better. And so whether or not ECG can be done accurately and with an acceptable false positive rate, to me, is not really the question. The question is, can we actually train physicians to do it accurately? Um, can we create the right physician infrastructure so we can, act, can um, uh, apply a more advanced screen and have that screen accessible to more, more athletes? Um, the other obstacle or really challenge to the ECG screening um, is the cost. You know, who are we going to do this in? How often? Who's going to pay for it? And probably more important than that, who's going to pay for the secondary investigations for the abnormal ECGs? An abnormal ECG in most circumstances is really just a marker that more workup is needed. Uh, for certain electrical problems in the heart, it may be the, the um, gold standard for diagnosis of, let's say, long QT syndrome or, or WPW. But for our cardiomyopathies, it's just suggestive, and you need more workup to rule it in and rule it out. Again, if the false positive rate is quite low, the, the cost of secondary evaluations um, diminishes quite a bit. And there's been uh, two or three recent cost-effectiveness analysis that all show that adding ECG actually becomes more cost-effective in terms of meeting our objective of identifying those at risk or actually uh, modeling and, and believing that we can prevent sudden death by identifying um, those at risk through early detection. So this training challenge, um, how would someone go about getting trained and what are your plans for that? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I think the first thing is to read up on it. Um, look at some of the literature on ECG screening, maybe understand how it's evolved um, over the last decade or so, understand the, the athletic heart changes, look at the 2010 uh, statement from the European Society of Cardiology. I, I think that statement has been expanded in an upcoming publication that will be in circulation by a group of uh, U.S. and also international authors that um, really is quite parallel, but, but in many ways uh, perhaps more uh, detailed, that will be very valuable. In our world in sports medicine, I think the first thing that sports, sports physicians need to understand is that they can read ECGs as well as anyone if they get the right training. It, it, it's a lot alike other things that we do in sports medicine that cross over other disciplines. Um, you know, we don't all need a radiologist to look at an MRI of the knee or the shoulder. Um, and while we certainly appreciate the cardiology overread uh, from our from our colleagues in cardiology when we get an ECG, and in the U.S. that that is the standard, and I would support that. The sports physician can still become very competent and confident in their ability to interpret an ECG in an athlete, and also to determine those ECGs that warrant additional follow-up that might be suggestive of underlying heart disease. 
Um, it's a matter of, of uh, self-education and some experience. We recently did a, a study where we took a, a number of ECGs, some from patients with known heart disease, like cardiomyopathy, and other ECGs from uh, elite uh, trained athletes that have the usual sort of athletic heart changes, and gave, mixed them up and gave them randomly to a set of uh, primary care residents, primary care attending, sports physicians, and cardiologists, none of which really had an interest in, in screening, and had them interpret the ECGs and then um, had them do it again, but the second time around using a simple table listing the criteria for what would be the cutoffs for abnormal. And in everyone, in every single discipline, they all improved dramatically in both their sensitivity and, sen and specificity, their ability to accurately determine whether an, uh, an ECG was normal or abnormal. And actually, in the end, just with a, a one, excuse me, a two-page sort of criteria tool, the primary care physicians statistically did just as well as our cardiology colleagues with use of the tool. This is not meant to say that that's all we need to do in terms of training physicians, but it just highlights that if we give people some information, they can do this much better. And so our plan um, is a wonderful partnership to try to create an educational module that will train sports physicians uh, around the world to accurately interpret an athlete's ECG. This will be a collaboration between the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, the European Society of Cardiology, and uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine. And uh, together we're going to get um, sports medicine and sports cardiology experts to uh, agree on the criteria we should be listing for today. Um, we're going to create an educational model that has uh, both text and lots of visual examples, um, a pre-test and a post-test, and we're also going to provide information on uh, where those, what you should do with those ECGs once you identify them, what should be the next step in workup, how far should that workup go, and, and who should you ask for help if you're the sports physician in, in terms of going those next steps. And so we'll have a, a way of training uh, sports physicians on how to interpret an ECG and what to do next. And I think this is critical not just for those sports physicians who are considering uh, adding ECG to their uh, screening protocol, but also for any sports physician who gets an ECG in an athlete for any reason. Because often we'll get it for a history of uh, lightheadedness or perhaps syncope or some chest pain and we need to know how to interpret those ECGs um, just as well when they're for diagnosis uh, purposes and not just for a screening purpose. So I'm, I'm very excited about this uh, future partnership. I think we're going to create a long-lasting, uh, freely available online tool that anyone in the world will be able to access and go through a training module that provides the initial foundation for how to interpret an ECG and then from there, they have to get some experience. And the experience will come by doing ECGs in athletes, um, spending time to interpret it uh, accurately, and, and, and gaining that experience. John, that's a compelling argument for adding ECG to the screening process. But some of the devil's advocates then say, well, 
there's no real value in history and physical alone. And, and I didn't get a clear message that you believe there is. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, a couple of things. I, I don't think um, anyone is really advocating for only implementing ECG, and uh, partly because I think as physicians, we, we like an opportunity to, to speak with our patient, interact with them, ask them the right history questions, and, and do a physical exam. Um, and while uh, history and physical is really quite limiting in identifying those at risk, there are some people at risk that can be identified by history or specifically family history. And to me, to miss them um, through that process uh, w would be a shame. Um, so for people who are having, let's say, recurrent exercise-related syncope or for those with a family history of uh, early sudden cardiac death uh, before the age of 50, um, those are red flag warning symptoms that uh, that should be investigated, and we may really identify uh, individuals at risk. Uh, but from a population basis, overall, only using history and physical will still miss the majority of people, majority of young athletes who are at risk. Um, if you were an epidemiologist um, or a scientist and you were looking at all of the available data, I think you would come up with um, two options. I think you would say either there's just not enough information to um, suggest screening at all, or that the only model to screen with is history, physical, and ECG. And, and then when you look at the data from a population standpoint, using history and physical alone is limited. The issue is that the option not to screen is really not there. Um, athletes are required to have a sports physical before they can participate. In the U.S., we have to sign a form for the school to allow the kid to participate. At the college, it's the same thing. Our professional athlete organizations, the Olympic athlete organizations, the athletes have to be screened and medically cleared to participate. So, so there is no option not to screen, which leaves us with, with you know, the two options that we've discussed before, sort of a, a more limited screen by history and physical or perhaps a more advanced screen. And I think when, um, when we look at the available data, um, assuming that we can interpret the ECG accurately, uh, the advanced model is more likely to meet our primary objective of identifying those at risk and therefore uh, meeting our objective of preventing sudden death in sport. What about moving on to AEDs? Should we go there now? Yeah, I think that's a, um, a, a great thing for us to talk about. You know, when we think about prevention of sudden cardiac death, um, there's the primary prevention, which we just talked about, screening, and then there's also secondary prevention. What do we do if there's actually a cardiac arrest? How do we respond to that athlete, um, and, and can it be effective? I think there's much less debate and controversy over secondary prevention compared to screening. Um, there's no doubt that defibrillators or AEDs save lives. They work. They work in any setting um, and really in any population, you know, young, old, athletic or not. Um, the AEDs originated, originally became available for public access, um, not in the sports medicine community. These were in uh, put in public places where there's a high uh, population density and therefore statistically a higher chance of cardiac arrest places like airports and casinos and shopping malls. And in all of those studies, 
having uh, lay responders uh, respond to a collapsed individual with quick access to a defibrillator within three to five minutes showed a dramatic improvement in survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. You know, the, the national statistic in the U.S. for survival um, is 5 to 8%. With access to a defibrillator, it is well over 50% survival from sudden cardiac arrest, so almost a tenfold improvement. We've studied that in the high school athletic community. Um, what happens when there's cardiac arrest in the high school setting, um, both in uh, our students, student athletes, and perhaps older individuals on a high school campus in the U.S., if the school actually has a defibrillator, um, this study was published in circulation, I think, in 2009, and um, we we uh, looked back at uh, about 1,700 high schools. There was a number of events, and the overall survival rate was 64%, um, and that included our student athletes and our students. And so, if you're a young athlete and you have a cardiac arrest uh, on the playing field or on the court and there's someone there who can recognize the event, someone there who knows CPR, and you have access to a defibrillator within a few minutes, it is more likely than not that you're going to survive. I think that's a pretty incredible statistic. The issue is that the defibrillators at this point are not in every school. They're not at every sporting venue. Um, and when we look at our European colleagues, um, they are making great efforts to, to try to make them available at their sporting arenas as well. And so the issue for AEDs is not whether or not they work. They definitely work, and they should be everywhere that we have organized sport. The issue becomes one of implementation and one of cost, and I think over time, uh, at some point, AEDs will probably be just as as common as fire extinguishers at our sporting venues. Nice analogy. And do you think people are doing a good job of planning for sudden arrest, John? I think um, the the concept of emergency planning for sudden cardiac arrest is re very critical, and I, ho I think that whole area has uh, gained attention over the last uh, 10 years or so. I think our athletic training um, colleagues do a wonderful job thinking about this, and really for any potential emergency in sports medicine, it, it makes sense to think about the what if ahead of time. And that's what we do if we think of American football and rugby and, and hockey. What do we do if someone has a head and neck injury uh, on the field? The first time we practice that emergency response is probably not when the event occurs. We've probably had some preseason uh, review. That's what emergency um, response planning for sudden cardiac arrest is. We, we want to think through the steps. One of the key things we've found in our research is that recognition of cardiac arrest in a young athlete is often delayed. And it's delayed because it's not what we think about when an athlete collapses. We, we think of something else. They're tired, they're fatigued, um, maybe they're having a seizure, um, maybe it's heat injury. In our um, research, 50% uh, of young athletes who collapse have some brief seizure-like activity. And so for the um, lay responder or even for some uh, medical responders, you could inaccurately diagnose a cardiac arrest as a seizure. 
And if you do that, you, you're, you're going to lose critical seconds and even minutes in terms of starting your emergency response. So the one uh, uh, critical sort of bullet of recognition is that, that we believe any athlete who is collapsed and unresponsive, I think you have to assume it could be cardiac arrest until proven otherwise. So you want to begin your emergency procedures, uh, think about CPR, begin chest compressions, and have someone go get an AED. If you're wrong and the athlete wakes up, you know, no harm done. If you if you go the other route and assume it's not cardiac arrest and delay those emergency procedures, you've lost critical time. The, the survival declines approximately 10% per minute. That defibrillation is delayed. So emergency planning becomes critical with recognition as, as the first piece. The other piece is having people around athletes trained in CPR and who are knowledgeable in where the defibrillator is and how to use it. Um, the, the, the most likely responder to an athlete is a coach and an athletic trainer. So as sports physicians, when we're at the event, it, you know, we're usually just at the games, we might be the responder, but it is more likely that in the um, youth level, the high school level, and most training sessions, the, the first responder is going to be a coach, a physio, um, a strength and conditioning coach, and these individuals need to be aware on how to recognize cardiac arrest. They need to be trained in CPR, and they need to have access to a defibrillator. And if we do, I think we can dramatically improve survival from cardiac arrest in the athletic setting. I think um, there's uh, a ton of added value to having the defibrillators at our sporting venues. If we rely only on the emergency response from our um, 911 or emergency uh, medical responders, there's going to be some delay for them getting to the event, and, and therefore that will take precious minutes where the chance of survival will, will decline. If we have the defibrillators at the events, we can dramatically improve survival. And, and in our research, we're seeing survival rates that are um, in, a, in a current prospective study that we're, we're doing that will end uh, this fall to two-year prospective study in our high schools we're seeing survival rates over 70% when defibrillators are available. So compared to the 5 to 8% survival um, when defibrillators are not available, that is a, a very uh, compelling reason to have defibrillators available at our sporting venues. And, John, I know you're rolling out efforts in the Seattle region on this front. Tell us about that. BJSM is big on implementation <laughs> and turning research into action. So yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, we're lucky to be in the Seattle uh, community because our uh, emergency medical services system is, is perhaps one of the best in the world. Um, we're also the the homeland for for the where AEDs uh, began and where three of our major manufacturers are. And and this has been a big effort of, of my research and some of my colleagues at the University of Washington really pushing public access to defibrillation. But we looked in our own backyard, and our, our public school system in Seattle really didn't have AEDs. And it took several years of effort and discussion and some education to work with them. Um, but finally, we got them to agree that if we could raise them the money, they would put defibrillators in their schools. And this really speaks to one of the primary obstacles for putting defibrillators in our schools and at some of our youth sporting venues 
the biggest obstacle is cost. Um, most school systems are already strapped for cash. They have difficult decisions to make about whether or not they should buy a defibrillator or buy textbooks. Um, and those are those are hard decisions to make. I think if you can uh, figure out a model for fundraising um, and work with the school system and the school board to understand why this is so important and perhaps provide that that money to the school um, um, the school district, you have an effective uh, way of putting defibrillators in the schools. It should be also said that you're not just putting defibrillators in schools. What you're giving the school are the defibrillators plus a comprehensive emergency response plan. The two have to go together. You can't just put defibrillators in schools and, affect it and expect that people know how to use them or where they are or that they're not locked up. Um, there has to be a comprehensive training program and um, emergency response plan that goes with it. So the package you're delivering to the school is better emergency planning and AEDs. In Seattle, we partnered with the Seattle Seahawks, our professional sports team, and, and many of our area uh, medical centers, including uh, my institution at the University of Washington, to put on some fundraising events and raise uh, money um, to give back to the school district to purchase defibrillators. And at, and at this point, um, we've raised over uh, $150,000 uh, on our way to putting what we hope is about 200 defibrillators in our Seattle public school system. That's a great success story, and, and we love those as part of our implementation push. What would you say the current cost is that people are looking at for AED in the school? Um, I think if you're only going to buy one defibrillator, I think you can get a, a high-quality, excellent defibrillator probably for about 1500 to $1,700, and that would include the, the AED cabinet um, and, and box that it goes in, the signage for the AED. I think when you um, are talking about buying in bulk many more defibrillators, there's uh, economy of scale and perhaps the opportunity to get the AEDs at a, a smaller price, perhaps uh, 11 to $1,200. And John, I know you had a scary scenario in the Seattle Marathon, but you were well prepared. Yeah, um, thank you for asking. This is a, a memorable event for me. In 2007, our institution became the primary sponsor for our Seattle Marathon, and we provided the, the medical care. And one of the first things that I did is make sure that we had defibrillators available at our finish line and along the, the course of the marathon, something that hadn't been there in the past. And uh, we were there our first year uh, covering the event, um, and one of our residents who's at the finish line um, witnessed uh, a 37-year-old uh, gentleman collapse approximately 50 yards from the finish line as he came into the stadium. Um, a bystander hopped over the, the barricade who happened to be a re retired cardiologist, and my resident ran out there, and the two of them um, agreed he was pulseless and unresponsive, and they began CPR. We had a communication system in, in place, and the, the medical response team that was you know, just at the finish line tent uh, was alerted, and we ran out there um, with an AED with our critical care nurse and our, our medical team. And for me, it was somewhat surreal, um, really promoting defibrillators, um, doing research in defibrillators, uh, as I ran out there, sort of like, I, I can't believe this is sort of happening. This is the first year we're, we're covering this event. 
Um, I, I took a lot of political capital to convince the, the, the planning team that we need defibrillators, and here we are in the scenario of, of possible cardiac arrest. When we arrived at the scene, we were there within a minute, maybe a minute and a half at the most. The collapsed individual looked gray and ashen. His eyes were open. His pupils were fixed and dilated for the most part. Um, he looked dead, unfortunately. And uh, we continued CPR. We got our defibrillator out. We dried his chest. We put on the leads. We um, let the defibrillator analyze while we stopped CPR. And going through my mind, this is my chance, right? Here's, here's I, I promote AEDs. I research AEDs. This is going to tell me to shock this individual, and he's going to survive. And the defibrillator uh, reads the rhythm, and it says, no shock advised. And at first, I was like, what do you mean no shock advised? This is when we're supposed to shock, right? But it said no shock advised, so we returned to doing chest compressions, um, got an advanced airway in, gave him oxygen, started an IV, etc. And unfortunately, his pulse came back. And for a short while, I was wondering, was this cardiac arrest? What happened? Um, it certainly wasn't a, a V-fib or V-tac arrest, or the defibrillator would have told us to shock. Um, when we got the AED tracing, it turned out that he was basically in an um, idioventricular, bradycardic, or more asystolic arrest, where the treatment really is chest compressions and, and advanced airway medications if needed, et cetera. And so he, he may have at some point been in a, in a uh, ventricular arrhythmia. Uh, we're not sure, but at the time of, that we read the uh, rhythm on the AED, it, it was not. And uh, fortunately, this individual um, survived. He was transported to our um, local hospital. Um, he was cooled for 24 hours, which is one of the other post-cardiac arrest measures that can really uh, improve outcomes. And um, it turned out he had a, a clogged um, uh, left main coronary artery that, that was relieved with a stent. And he's doing quite well and, and has survived. And the message to me here is one that, that I um, speak about when you talk about defibrillators. And the message here was it's not just about the AED. The, the reason this person survived is because we had a plan. We had a medical team in place. We had reviewed our response to a collapsed individual. We had a defibrillator available. But our response plan is not just the defibrillator. We, we know how to recognize. We know how to do CPR. We know how to call 911, and we have the defibrillator. And because we had that in place and we had reviewed and practiced it and implemented it, um, this person survived. So it was a it was a strong lesson to me, um, both that I was happy we had the AED and, and happy that we had the plan. And it sounds like you've got a good donor for the uh, AED program in the schools, John. John, yeah. before we yeah. leave this uh, podcast today, um, we want to move to your role with AMSSM and and touch on the conference uh, for 2012, because clearly some of the things you've been talking about will be on the agenda there. Tell us about AMSSM and why listeners should potentially join and how they would join, and then we'll move on to the conference itself. T terrific. So, so AMSSM is the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. We're um, a U.S. national organization of um, sports physicians. Um, I think we're the largest organization, uh, at least in, in North America, of, of sports physicians. And right now our membership is about 1,800. 
Um, we, we have an annual meeting every year, which to me is just a, a fabulous conference, um, really the highlight uh, of my sort of sports medicine education every year. It's a very uh, collegial uh, conference. Most of our sessions are unopposed. Um, we have a wonderful program and highlighted speakers. In, in 2012, our national meeting will be in Atlanta, um, April 21st to 25th. I'd invite uh, anyone to come check it out um, and, and get to know the AMSSM and just come to a wonderful meeting. Um, our program in Atlanta um, will cover injury prevention, uh, cardiac disorders uh, in athletes, uh, many of the things we talked about uh, uh, today, um, care of the elite professional athlete. We'll look at concussion, uh, hip and groin pain in the athlete. We're going to have a session on endurance athletes, uh, prevention of sudden death, pediatric athlete, and um, a highlighted session on uh, biologic therapies, new things like PRP. Um, fortunate to have a, a number of uh, international uh, keynote speakers. Uh, Roald Barr has a, a agreed to participate. Uh, Per Holmick uh, from Denmark, um, uh, Martin Schwellness and John uh, Patricios from South Africa, um, and uh, yourself, Karen. We, we just have a, a wonderful group of participants, and um, as well as some uh, U.S. speakers, and uh, I think this will be terrific. So um, if you're listening and, and you want to come to a great conference, uh, as the brochure comes out, which will be really uh, uh, in December from our website, uh, www.amssm.org, um, you can you can look at the brochure and, and sign up. Um, we are also this year developing uh, an international member category, um, which we're trying to make as uh, cost reasonable as possible where the cost of the membership really isn't much more than just coming to our annual meeting uh, and being part of AMSSM. So, so we welcome uh, all comers, and we think really we have uh, a lot to offer and also a lot to learn from our international colleagues who would love their participation. It's uh, April 21st to 25th in Atlanta. And having been to many AMSSM meetings, I really put my word behind the social atmosphere, very congenial meeting great focus on primary care sports medicine and I do recommend that one wholeheartedly. You've been listening to John Dresner and he's a Senior Associate Editor of the Sports Cardiology at BJSM. You can read more of his work in circulation and other cardiology journals as well as at BJSM. You can listen to his keynote presentation from the IOC Injury Prevention Congress in Monaco earlier this year at a link on related to this podcast and obviously you'll be able to get more from him at the AMSSM meeting in Atlanta in 2012 as well as other places. You can find all our podcasts on the BJSM homepage and you can follow BJSM through Twitter and our Twitter address is at BJSM underscore BMJ. Thanks for engaging with BJSM and we look forward to providing you more clinically relevant sport and exercise medicine content. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.